started. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, come, Holy Spirit, come, Holy Spirit. Jesus, I praise and thank you for the gift of this day. I thank you, Lord, for all of the beauty that you want to reveal to us this evening. Lord, I ask that in this time you would just give to us um, seeds that you will grow as we go forth from here tonight. Lord, I ask that you would give to each of us the grace to cultivate hearts that are pure, meaning hearts that have the capacity to see you in those around us. And Mother Mary, we just entrust all of our intentions and our time to you as we say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Awesome. Okay, so the notes that I have for you, if you don't have some, it'd be helpful for you if you get some. They're up here on chairs. Um, but what I did was I typed out for you basically the, the titles of the different sections that you find in Theology of the Body. So on the first page, what we've gone through already in the t previous two talks is part one, the words of Christ, and then we talked about chapter one, um, which was Christ appealing to the beginning, and we call that original man. So original man meaning human beings as they existed before the fall, right? So man and woman could look at each other, and they were naked without shame. And then chapter two is Christ appealing to the human heart historical man, which we talked about last time, which I don't really have to explain to you because you all exist at this time in history, and you see the effects of the fall, that we cannot walk around without clothes on. We are not any longer naked without shame. Um, but that there is a call that the Lord is calling us deeper and that he wants to perfect us in and through our interior. Um, I feel like fire engines always go off during these talks, but just personal thought. Um, so I've bolded what we're going to go through tonight, and then you can also see what's coming up. So after tonight, we're going to jump into what does it look like in the resurrection? What does it mean that we believe in the resurrection of the body? Um, what does it mean, the sacrament of marriage now? All these things we've talked about. How does that relate to the sacrament of marriage? Um, and then the last talk, we're going to talk about um, the Song of Songs and the Book of Tobit, which are two books in the Old Testament, and sort of how they have set a foundation for us to see how the Lord desires and rejoices in the gift of human sexual love. So for those of you who may not have come last time, I did put some of the quotes from last time's notes on here. So I just kind of want to go through them really quick. So page one to review, um, just a few sentences. It says, the fact that theology also includes the body should not astonish or surprise anyone who is conscious of the mystery and reality of the incarnation. Through the fact that the word of God became flesh, the body entered theology. That is the science that has divinity for its object. I would say through the main door. The incarnation and the redemption that flows from it has also become the definitive source of the sacramentality of marriage. So this isn't he saying just like a question of science. This is the deeper questions that we have as human beings and that people are looking to find their way of salvation and holiness. So he continues and he says, on the road of this vocation of marriage, how indispensable is a deepened consciousness of the meaning of the body and its masculinity and femininity? How necessary is an accurate consciousness of the spousal meaning of the body, of its generative meaning, given that all that forms the content of the life of the spouses must always find its full and personal dimension in shared life, in behavior, and in feelings. Contemporary biophysiology can offer much precise information about human sexuality. Nevertheless, the knowledge of the personal dignity of the human body and of sex must still be drawn from other sources. A particular source is God's own word, which contains the revelation of the body, the revelation that goes back to the beginning. How significant it is that in his answer to all of these questions, Christ orders man to return in some way to the threshold of his theological history. He orders man to place himself at the boundary between original innocence and happiness and between the inheritance of the first fall. By doing so, does he not want to say that the way on which he leads man, male and female, in the sacrament of marriage namely the way of the redemption of the body, must consist in retrieving this dignity in which the true meaning of the human body, its meaning as personal and of communion, is fulfilled at the same time. What does that mean? So what he's saying is, is Christ, because he took on human flesh, which is God become man, 
That is why theology, right, the science or the study of God and his revelation to his creatures, that's why we have something to say about the human body. In fact, we have a lot to say about the human body because in and through the incarnation, he says that it's like God entered through the main door. We can study, and biology is beautiful. All of the intricacies of the human body, to me, is just another proof of God's existence, honestly, because, like, we're walking around and our DNA is constantly replicating and all these things should go wrong and they don't. Like, it's absurd, right? But if that's the only way that I look at the human body is through a biophysical understanding, then I'm going to miss the point of what it means to be a human person. Because I can study animals and plants and see their biological consequences and how they grow and how they change, etc. But if we're not the same as them, then what separates us from that? And we would say it's that we have a rational soul. But what he's not saying is that then because of that, the body is somehow unimportant. He's saying we want and need both. But let's look at the value and the dignity of what the body actually is. And he's saying that within marriage especially, what's important is that we can retrieve an understanding of this original dignity. So from the beginning, before the fall, what was God's original plan for man and woman? By going back there, we're able to better understand. We can't go back in, like, in person and sit there, right? But in our understanding, we can go back and sort of glean from what the Lord has told us, what it was like to understand his love for us and his original plan for us, and then to try and cultivate our hearts in such a way that it imitates and echoes what it was like in the beginning. And the only reason why any of this is possible or that we're even having this conversation is because God entered the universe as a man, because Christ took on human flesh. And in that human flesh, fully God and fully man, he chose to lay down his life out of love, and he offered himself, right, his suffering, death, and his resurrection. That We need all of that. All of that is connected. So again, to continue with reviewing, authentic love looks like a communion of persons. What is the greatest example that we have ever in existence of a communion of persons is the love of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who give themselves in an endless exchange of love. But what is the greatest created reality that God has given to this world that imitates and can echo the Trinity? The greatest example, meaning it's not the exact same, but it's the closest we can get. The greatest example is the human family. That's why the human family is so important. Man gives himself to a woman who receives the gifts and offers herself back to man, and their love is so real that nine months later you can give it a name, and we have the human family. It's an exchange of love right? Um, continuing on, it talks about adultery as being a radical falsification of the sign. So we keep saying the sign, like what's the sign? What is the sign that best reflects God's existence in love and his identity of love to the world? And if that is the love between man and woman and the family that comes from that, then adultery, which goes against that, it falsifies the sign. That's why it's such a big deal. Um, Anything you read in the wisdom literature, it awaits what we call the transformation of the ethos of the Sermon on the Mount. So this is where Jesus was like, you know, don't lust after your wife. Like, if you look at a woman lustfully in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Like, he made that very clear. And he also said, like, in the beginning, it was not so that you were going to have divorce. Like, because of your hardness of hearts, the law, the old law allows it, but that's not how God intended it. So he's trying to pull these men and women that he's talking to, they're living in a historical context. They've experienced the fall. And they're trying to throw these questions at him where they're like, really, is this possible? How is this possible? What do we do? And he's like, don't stop there. Don't just stop at these external rules where you follow and you're like, do this, don't do this. Do this, don't do this. We're trying to pull everyone forward, right, with him, that there's a deeper call, that there's more of a joy, happiness possible, holiness possible than just don't, commit adultery. Don't, you know, covet after your neighbor's goods. Don't kill. He wants us to go deeper than just that. Um, and then he talks about um, that, you know, he makes a clear distinction. And it's kind of the part I put the asterisks by it. This is not the same. So adultery committed in the heart is not the same as the perennial reciprocal attraction of the man to femininity and of the woman to masculinity, which is an imitation mediated by the body, a.k.a. man sees woman, he is attracted to woman, in and through the gift of her body. Woman sees man, she is attracted to man, in and through the gift of his body. That's a good, good, good thing. That's how God made it to be. So what I just read to you, the perennial reciprocal attraction of the man to woman through their body, that's what God wanted it to be like. He made it that way. That does not surprise him, disappoint him, or upset him. It makes him rejoice. 
He's saying that, which I'm going to call in this moment, something more akin to passion and attraction, right? That is not the same thing as lust or use or abuse. This is really, really, really important because if you go to Walmart and you look at the magazines, all the magazines, and maybe, I don't know if men notice these as much, but we notice them as women, all the magazines, like, they equate lust with passion. It's, it's this idea that, like, to be attractive, to be wanted, um, you want to be wanted in a certain way, and that that lust is a good thing. They don't understand what lust is. And if they do, they don't understand what love is, right? Like, they don't, all of us, if that's what we think is the end goal, we don't really know what love is. Um, so what John Paul II is trying to encourage us is that the next line, human life is by its nature co-educational. And its dignity as well as its balance depend at every moment of history and in every place of geographic la- longitude and latitude on who she shall be for him and he for her. So in other words... Just by showing up to your life, you're going to interact with men and women, and you're going to be able to learn, what are my struggles? What are my weaknesses? What are my strengths? Where can I offer love? Where are my desires? Where am I being attracted? You come to know who you are. Like, that's why you should show up to your life. I mean, for many reasons. But you don't have to go looking for, like, a lesson. If you want to grow deeper in the knowledge of theology of the body, you pray for the grace to have the eyes to see and to know your own heart. And then you start to grow in the gift of self-possession, Self-possession is where we can give the most full gift of ourself. And we'll come back to self-gift in just a few minutes. Um, the next thing it talks about is that when we accept what he said in these lines about don't lust after a woman and that divorce wasn't in the original plan, um, he's saying that man and woman are called to a full and mature spontaneity in relationships that are born from the perennial attraction of masculinity and femininity. And that such spontaneity is itself the gradual fruit of discernment of the impulses of one's own heart. Um, and if you keep reading, it says that Christ's words, they are severe, what he's calling man and woman to. But above all, Christ is calling them to understand their interior, to understand the own inner impulses of their own hearts. And he says that as human beings, if we are made in the image and likeness of God and we are free, which you are, by the way, um, we have the capacity to, like a watchman who watches over a hidden spring, to be able to draw from all these impulses, so all the movements in our heart, we can draw from that a purity of heart by building the conscience and consistency of the personal sense of the spousal meaning of the body. Meaning, as I come to know how my heart moves in reaction and attraction towards the men that are around me, I can start to detect and sense, like what is me trying to take from without knowing the other, and what is me trying to receive the gift of without grasping or trying to control? Because those are two different things, right? And he's saying it's good, though. Like, it's a struggle. You know, this is a work of, whenever they use the word eschesis, it's like, it's a discipline. They're not saying it's easy by any means. But if you've done anything that's worth it, it usually revolves discipline, consistency, habit building, right? Um, so there's a book I probably recommend that I feel like in the first talk, It's called Father Elijah. It's by Michael O'Brien. And he basically, uh, one character who's this like Padre Pio priest figure looks at the younger priest and he's like asking this man whose name is David, the younger priest. He's like, David, how are your gates? And David's like, I don't understand what you're talking about. And he's like, how are your gates? Like the gates of your heart. And David responds, oh, they're battered, but they're holding firm. And later on in the story, he talks about letting truth stand guard as the watchman. Let truth stand guard at the gates of your heart. So if you've never thought about this, that's okay. But I hope tonight you kind of have an imagery just from what I said. Like, ladies and gentlemen, what is happening on your interior? Do not just stay surface level. That's what most of the culture is doing. And has it helped us become more happy? I would argue no. Go deeper than the surface level. What's happening in your heart of hearts? It's okay if you don't understand it. I'm not saying you need to understand it. We're a mystery unto ourselves most of the time. But I'm saying don't be afraid to go there and start asking the questions like, what is this coming up? What is this impulse? What is this feeling when this person walks through the room? What is this frustration when this person says this? Like, what am I experiencing? And the best place to run, and I'm not saying this because I was taught this in theology class. I'm saying this because it's my personal experience, is if you do have these questions, to run to the Adoration Chapel and to ask Jesus. And not because he's going to sit there and be like, this is the answer to every question you have. But because as you sit there, he's going to help reveal you to yourself. Does that make sense? And that is the gift, y'all. I'm hoping to get tonight to the concept of like, the best gift you can offer to anyone 
is a full gift of self, right? In, in fact, like we think about gifts and material objects, but like the gift is the human person. That's the like epitome of gift. Um, and so the more you know who you are, the more you can offer a gift of self. Um, and so just that last line um, on the, it's the top of page three, it's bolded. It says, the words of Christ indicate the road toward a mature spontaneity of the human heart that does not suffocate its noble desires and aspirations, but on the contrary, liberates and helps them. Okay, what are we talking about? Um, so I've had conversations, like, I'll, because I give a lot of talks to women and to men, I even recently have had a few conversations with different men, and I'm like, oh, what does that work like in your brain? Like, like, a woman walks into the room and, like, attraction. Like, I'm just trying to understand, because, like, you're foreign to me. Like, I love you guys, but I'm like, my brain does not work like that. Um, and, you know, sometimes I'm just laughing because I'm like, really? That's what you're thinking? Like, that is not what I would have been thinking. Okay. But, like, the beauty, there's a beauty in the complementarity and the difference of how God made men and how he made women. For the record, ladies, you don't get it. I don't get it. We don't get it. We put in our minds all these ideas of what we have to do to be attractive in and through the gift of our bodies. And I'm like, y'all, the more and more I talk to men, I'm like, God made the woman's body to be attractive. It was made to be beautiful. I got a thumbs up from a man in the back of the room. It was made to be beautiful. There's nothing you can do to screw that up. I'm so serious. Like, we get so caught up in our heads about, like, trying to understand men's minds. And I say that because, one, it's a gift to know, like, you can't screw it up. God made you with beauty. That's an inalienable stamp on your person because you are a woman made in the image and likeness of God, and therefore you are also a daughter of the Father, right? The second part of that is there's a responsibility. Like, in a sense, we are our brother's keeper, and that's where modesty comes in, right? It's not, modesty is not always supposed to be this, like, no, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, as much as it's a gift of, like, what are the places and spaces in my own life, my own heart, my own body? How do I veil myself so that I reverence the gift of myself? As a woman, I'm first and foremost a subject responsible for myself. My brothers in humanity are responsible for me as well in their heart of hearts, how they view me. But I, first and foremost, am also responsible for myself and how I offer the gift of myself. Does that make sense? And like this, you can flip it, right? I'm just bringing it up in that way because I'm a woman having conversations with men and it's fascinating to me. It's really fascinating. Comical and fascinating. Um, And so with this quote, what he's talking about is that as you grow in maturity, in your conscience, in your awareness of the gift of the own movements of your heart and the awareness of the gift of the attractions you experience, and then one day if you're called to marriage, you take vows. As you grow in that, as you learn how to assimilate an attraction that comes up, and this can all be so abstract, so I'm trying to make it a little bit more tangible. What chastity is, is a good thing for the record, and everyone's called to it. It's not just those who aren't married. Chastity is for every state in life. What it means is, is that I know how to be a master of my own heart. I uniquely as an individual, as Sarah, but each of us as human beings. When I see a person that I am attracted to, whatever, whatever it's like physical, emotional, spiritual, it doesn't matter. Whatever part of them I am attracted to, that's not bad. God made me in such a way that I should be attracted to members of the opposite sex, right? Like, this is good. But when I fall into a problem as if I divorce, like if I'm looking at a man and he talks in a certain way or like, I don't know, a certain way physically there's something that's attractive to me and then I cut him into pieces and I don't really care about him as a person. I just care about, oh, but if you say these things, I feel good. Or if you dress like this, like it makes me feel special because like you're showing some interest. Like if I don't care about this person, so this is both ways. If we don't care about the other individuals, you know, like what are their dreams? What are their fears? What are their desires? In other words, you have to care for the whole person. The reason why Christ is saying don't look at a woman lustfully because therefore you're committing adultery with her in your heart is because he's like, you don't even know her. So if you're just going basis off of um, a physical appearance and then in your heart of hearts, entering into a sphere of sexual activity in your mind and in your heart because our imaginations are strong and you're not pulling that in, reeling that in, right? Then like you're using her. You're using an image of her to give you pleasure without actually loving her person. Does that make sense? Okay. So this whole like mature spontaneity and it doesn't suffocate his simple desires but liberates and helps them. He's saying what the culture is settling for is the dumpster. 
when Christ is like, come into the wedding feast. The culture saying, like, this is the dumpster, this is all this stuff that, like, oh, like, but this feels really good, like, this seems really good. And Jesus is like, no, 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 like, come further, because this is what you really want, right? So, moving forward, um, that was the review, which only took me 20 minutes. <laughs> okay, moving on. So tonight, what I hope to answer is important questions, like, what is freedom? What does it mean to say that freedom exists for the sake of love? And why is this concept of self-gift so important? What's its connection to freedom? So I included some other quotes for you. If these are the only quotes you remember from tonight, I'm really okay with that because I want you to take these to prayer. So first one is from a document called Redemptor Hominis. I don't speak Latin, whatever. It means the redeemer of man. It's Christ. It says, man cannot live without love. He remains a being that is incomprehensible for himself. His life is senseless if love is not revealed to him, if he does not encounter love, if he does not experience it and make it his own, if he does not participate intimately in it. This, as has already been said, is why Christ the Redeemer fully reveals man to himself. The man who wishes to understand himself thoroughly, and not just in accordance with immediate, partial, often superficial, and even illusory standards and measures of his being, he must, with his unrest, uncertainty, and even his weakness and sinfulness, with his life and death, draw near to Christ. He must, so to speak, enter into him with all his own self. He must appropriate and assimilate the whole of reality of the incarnation and redemption in order to find himself. Yeah, I know that was a lot. In other words, as you're experiencing these ebbs and flows and attractions and desires in your heart, which are good, what do you do with them? He's not acknowledging that you're not going to struggle with sinfulness, that you're not going to struggle with weakness, that you're not going to struggle with temptation. He's saying, don't stop there. Christ, who was a man on this planet, right? If he was a man, he was fully God, fully man. It's not like he didn't notice the beauty of women. Like, don't think that. He did. And with his will, he was training his interior heart, like, because he's full of the spirit, because he's God, right? Like, so a human heart was able to assimilate the gift of beauty in a way that was life-giving. So that's why he's saying, like, assimilate the way that Christ has lived this. He teaches us how we can have human flesh and live with a sort of divine love that can pierce all of our relationships. Um, the next quote is from JP2's Love and Responsibility. And it says, the gifts of self, so remember, this is like the key to everything is self-gift. The gift of self is a defining mark of spousal love between man and woman in contrast with other forms of love. Betrothed or spousal love differs from all the aspects or forms of love analyzed hitherto. Its decisive character is the giving of one's own person to another. This is something different from and more than attraction or desire or even goodwill. These are all ways by which one person goes out toward another, but none of them can take him as far. The fullest, the most uncompromising form of love consists precisely in self-giving and making one's inalienable and non-transferable eye someone else's property. In other words, there's so many ways in which we can offer love to people around us, right? Like friendship, um, family, etc. But he's saying the most full gift that you can offer to another person is a spousal gift. Why? Because... I, as a subject, as a human person, uniquely as a woman, right? I, remember I said I'm a subject that's responsible for herself. I can choose with my will, which is my freedom, to offer myself and gift to another, right? But no one can do that for me, which is why weddings are not valid if someone forces you to walk down the aisle, okay? It's only in my freedom that I choose to offer myself as a gift. And I literally, in a sense, make myself the property of the other, if, if this is a divine commandment of love and that's the rule of this relationship, then that's a good thing to then offer myself for, right? And vice versa. And if Christ reveals man to himself, then he's shown us what that looks like. And he's always, John Paul II is always saying that we only find ourselves through a sincere gift of selves. So like last night I was giving this talk and, you know, as it was on the theology of woman. So as man gives himself to woman, as woman receives the gift of man in all aspects of what that means and offers herself back, like, we talk about nine months later, you can give it a name and there's a baby, you know? Okay, so think about it. There's all these ways and aspects in which unless we are in communion with another person, we don't even know the fullness of who we are because we haven't even be, been asked to give ourselves in certain ways. 
So if you watch someone and they enter into marriage and they enter into specifically a woman, enters into motherhood, there's ways in which they're going to be exhibiting and offering acts of love that they wouldn't be doing unless they had this other person for whom they would be offering themselves. Does that make sense? It's in giving ourselves, it's such a crazy paradox. It's in giving ourselves that we find ourselves. Like there's ways that I don't even know how I can love unless I'm in communion with another person and they reflect back to me like I can be a gift to you as I receive the gift of you to my own person. Does that make sense? Okay, which is why the next quote is really, really important. So, sorry to bust your bubble because I know this is the one. I feel like people are like, what? At least our culture. Maybe you don't think this would be bad, but... Love consists of a commitment which limits, limits one's freedom. It is a giving of the self, and to give oneself means just that, to limit one's freedom on behalf of another. Limitation of one's freedom might seem to be something negative and unpleasant, but love makes it a positive, joyful, and creative thing. Freedom exists for the sake of love. Man longs for love more than for freedom. Freedom is the means and love the end. I mean, that could be my whole talk, and you could all go, but I'll keep explaining. So often, and I'm just thinking about this in all the years that I've studied this. Today, this really jumped out at me in a different way. I think in our culture, what we've done is we've put freedom as the ultimate goal, because we've equated that to be happy means we must be free. What John Paul II is saying is, no, that's settling and it's missing the mark. He's saying that freedom is not the end goal. Freedom is not the end. Love is the end. And the only way we get to love is through freedom. So freedom is therefore the means. Does that make sense? It's really tempting in our culture and with everything we have going around us to think, I'm only going to be happy if I can do whatever I want, whenever I want to do it, and no one else can say anything about it. Because who the heck wants, I don't want anyone to rain on my parade. I'm like, I want to go do that. I'm going to go do it. But that's not how life works with anything right? When it comes to love, if I as a woman offering myself in a sense through my freedom and I'm now in a, in a sense a property of the other, right? Then like the only way to respect the other is if my freedom is therefore now limited. If I don't respect the other, then I'm just being selfish. Does this make sense? So like freedom is a beautiful thing, y'all, but that also means that when one day you're called to vows and you offer yourself to another in whichever form that takes, the most beautiful thing you're doing is that you're offering the gift of your freedom. You're saying, my freedom is now yours. What you say affects what I do with my time, with my emotions, with my dreams, with everything, right? So what I want you to hear from that too is like, do not be afraid to limit your freedom in and through offering yourself as a gift of love to another. And when I say do not be afraid, I mean I'm begging you, don't miss out on what God wants for you because love is the goal. Freedom is not the goal. Love is the goal. And if you push through towards that, then what you're going to find out is that you discover even more fully in a way that you can't even understand yet who you are because you find yourself through a sincere gift of self, right? And I get it, like I was giving a talk at a Theology of the Body retreat. This is like three or four years ago, and they were asking some questions that really piqued my interest. And um, I remember, whatever, I guess this was Jesus because I don't think I came up with it. But I was like, okay, but like, how do you talk to people when they're like, yeah, but I just want to have fun, and I just want to, you know, like, what if there's someone else? Like, what if I commit to this one person like there's someone else, and like then I missed out on it? Like, we can fall into that. I don't know if you've ever thought that. I've thought that before. Like, wonder, like, how does that work? My sense is that if you are truly committing your freedom to another person in and through the gift of vows, we think it's going to make, like, it's going to cut our joy or, like, cut sort of our happiness on this side of heaven and our, our life, like, to be able to go and do whatever we want. But vows are sort of this, like, vector, I don't know where that word's coming from, that forces us, like, pushes us, encourages us to this one source, right? Instead of me having to, like, get all anxious about all these options that are floating around, this comes back to, like, how we're paralyzed as a culture because we have, like, a billion choices of, like, spaghetti. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Like, which one do I want? Like, what if I make the wrong decision? And then it takes me way too much time, and I probably made the wrong decision anyway. Quotes. Um, so the point is, like, when we take vows to a person, 
right? It's not possible that I then have therefore, like by limiting my freedom, I'm missing out. You're not missing out. You're finally pushing forward to offer your freedom as a gift because freedom is not the end. Love is the end. And then because of the vows, there are certain decisions in your life that are going to be a heck of a lot easier. I'm just saying that's my understanding of it. You don't really have to like figure out like what you're called to do in this day because your freedom's connected to another person's freedom. So it's together like my decisions affect the other. And I become who I am by offering a gift of myself and receiving this gift. Do you see how it's, it's this complementarity? It's a, it's a dance and a conversation before the Father. That's how God intended and created man and woman. It's a really beautiful thing. I'm just getting serious sometimes. I forget to like lighten it up for you. Um, so don't be afraid of offering your freedom to another for the sake of love. Love is so worth it. Moving on. Um, I put all these quotes on here because I want you to read them. And I want you to read them so bad. Please read them. I won't be able to read them all to you. Um, so, but new ethos. So what we talked about last time with the ethos is like the spirit, the, the inner, like, central primary reason for the spirit of something. Like, so the ethos of the gospel, what is this all about? What is this purity of heart stuff about? And it says, second to last quote on page three at the bottom, Christ's words address the heart that is the inner man. The inner man is the specific subject of the ethos or the spirit of the body, and it's with this that Christ wants to impregnate the consciousness or conscience and will of his audience and his disciples. Continuing, in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ does not invite man to return to the state of original innocence because humanity has left it irrevocably behind. But he calls him to find, on the foundation of the perennial and one might say indestructible meanings of what is human, the living forms of the new man. In this way, a connection is formed, even a continuity between the beginning and the perspective of redemption. So, Everything that this is talking about is we've come from original man before the fall. We could be naked without shame. The dividing line is the fall. And now we struggle with concupiscence. What he's saying is, is we exist in history, still struggling with that. But if we allow our lives to be impregnated with the gospel, to take on a whole new life through the Holy Spirit, then we're no longer the same as the man who's just stuck in concupiscence. We have the power to live a life choosing love and not lust. We have the power to be free so that we can offer ourselves in love because we are literally on fire with the life of the Holy Spirit. And it's possible because as it said in that first quote, because Christ, like the incarnation, we have something to say in theology about the body because Christ entered through the front door when he took on human flesh. So everything he's saying is that it starts with the inner man. If you went to Mass yesterday, it was, I think the first reading was something with St. Paul and like talking about things outside the body and things inside the body. And where's the quote, I'm really paraphrasing St. Paul didn't say it like this. Where's the bad stuff come from? Jesus is like, hello, like it comes from the inside. He's trying to get us away from this old law custom of like these external rules and this, it's like a hygiene. It's like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And he's like, you're missing the mark. Let's go deeper. So the first part is the interior vision. The second part is the appropriate way that we go about the world and that we are and that we act. Um, and so the first full quote on page four, it says, Christ shows clearly that the way to attain this goal must be the way of temperance and of mastery of desires, already at the very root, already in the purely interior sphere. The ethos or the spirit of redemption contains in every context the imperative of self-mastery, the necessity of immediate continence and habitual temperance. He keeps saying over and over and over again that you can be the master of your own heart. Take that away. You can be the master of your own heart. Whatever you are experiencing in your heart, I'm telling you that you have the capacity to be the master of your own heart because God wants to give you the grace to do so. It's not just an external rule. It's the gospel, meaning it's based on his body, blood, soul, and divinity. And you can do this because he gives you the power. Um, if you go down a little bit further, um, this long quote, I'm not going to make you read it. But basically he's saying you can feel when you start to live out this kind of life that like you almost have to push the subject away. Like just don't look at the other person like you just reject it. But he's like, no, 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 no. As you start to understand the movements of your heart, you're going to start to have a vision. And this is why it says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Purity is connected with vision. It's connected with seeing. What concupiscence does is as if I threw you on the ground and you just got mud all on your eyes and you can't see anything. It darkens everything, right? What grace does, it starts to take the mud off of your eyes so that you can see more clearly, right? Pray with the scripture about the blind man, right? Like, he even had, I think he spit on his hands like twice, I think. Anyway, the point is, pray with the scripture for the blind man. And he starts to see people and they're moving around like he can just see like they're trees and then he can see that they're real people. It's kind of like when you were first on this journey of self-mastery, you might have to like turn away and you can't look, but that's not the end goal. The end goal is that you can look and you can still, moments of temptation where the enemy wants you to fall can become moments of prayer where instead of saying like out of fear you have to push something away, And that's okay if that's the place that you are. But as you grow, if you continue to grow and you ask for the grace, you start to see more clearly and God gives you the grace to then turn that upside down and now it becomes a prayer of praise and thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of my sister. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of my brother, however it works in that particular instance. And then you've now offered praise for the gift of the other that God has allowed you to encounter. Um, So what he's saying is that this purity of heart reveals that there's layers and that When I mentioned chastity earlier, when I look at someone and just with my gaze, I somehow use them or take from them, I don't know the whole person. I don't know everything apart them, their dreams, their desires, their fears, like we were talking about. And that's the call is to love the whole person. The hope that we have is if you keep moving on, it says the human heart is above all the object of a call and not of an accusation. Christ is not here to say like, wait a mess it up, guys, like stop doing that. He's saying, I've called you deeper because I want you to be happy. And because your happiness is connected to love. And because love is connected to freedom. And because your heart is part of your will, what are you choosing to do with your freedom? Are you choosing to see those around you as gifts? And first and foremost, are you offering yourself as a subject responsible for yourself? Are you offering and loving yourself in how you look around you and how you present yourself and how you speak and how you act and how you dress, all those things? It says that Christ sees in the heart and man's innermost being the wellspring of purity. Um, So the next part he goes through, uh, there's a lot that he writes about St. Paul and St. Paul's writings on like, you know, the works of the flesh are bad and the works of the spirit are good. And what does he mean by that? He uses this word, sarks, and it, what Paul's intention in saying all this is that when he uses the word flesh, he's talking about the way in which the world views those things that are flesh. Um, it's not, when I say flesh, most of the time I'm presenting this, I mean like how God has created the body and it has dignity. So he's trying to clarify Paul's understanding of flesh when he's talking about the works of the flesh versus the works of the spirit is that this is, when I say flesh with St. Paul, I'm saying a man who is dominated by his senses, who hasn't gone deeper and been dominated by his spirit. Does that make sense? He wants us to start from the interior. Instead of living our lives on the external and then going in and reacting, he's like, no, the seat, the wellspring of purity comes from within your interior. Um, And second quote, top page five. Except it doesn't look like it's the second because I forgot to put a space. But it says, the dimension of the new ethos of the gospel is nothing other than an appeal to human freedom an appeal for its fullest realization and in some way for the fullest use of the powers of the human spirit. The key to all this is subordination of freedom to love. My freedom, I subordinate that to what is the call to love in this moment. If I flip it, then I'm subordinating love to freedom, then whatever I want goes. It doesn't really matter about the other person's needs or desires, right? But if love is no greater love has one than this until he done his life for his friend, and sometimes it involves a discipline in my will to not use another person, then that's still the route I want to go. Because through offering my freedom in that way and not using the other, I'm choosing love. Um, he says, living according to the world's definition of love according to the flesh makes me incapable of this freedom. And when this happens, when we allow ourselves to be dominated by the senses and we don't fight this battle then we cease to be suitable for the true gift of self, which is the fruit and expression of such freedom. He further ceases to be capable of the gift organically linked with the spousal meaning of the body. What the heck is happening? I'm just going to shorten this for you and tell you. When you talk about justification, what the heck is justification? People use this term in theology a lot. So, um, so like Martin Luther and Protestantism, that they would say that we are snow-covered dung. So imagine snow-covered dung, 
Okay, you imagined it. So basically, we're the dung. Jesus sacrifices the snow. And when God the Father looks at us, he sees like Christ covers everything in us that would be bad. What they're trying to say here, what John Paul II was saying is like, we, we don't agree with that. We don't want to stop there because we believe that the inner man of every human person, the inner heart of man and woman has the capacity that from within they can be transformed. That it's not that Christ covers us like a blanket. It's that Christ's grace comes within my very heart and being. And that as uniquely individual Sarah Jenny, I can live from within and I can with my freedom choose and love in such a way that I exhibit the glory of God to the world. Does that make sense? I mean, a little bit. Okay, sweet. Um, So with that, he keeps on bringing up that we are talking about the body. Yes, it is a physical reality. But he's like, don't limit it to this, when he says somatic sense, like that in biology, I study it. Um, But he says, what is that issue? This is the bold quote, middle of page five. What is that issue is not only the body, so this sort of biological understanding, but also man who expresses himself by means of that body. And in this sense, I would say, is that body. In other words, I can't exist to any of you in this room without existing in and through the gift of my body. Like, none of us can do that. We're not souls that just float around, right? We are spirit and matter. We are soul and body, right? I express myself in and through the gift of my body in every interaction I have. So, um, continuing, it talks about there's a harmony before the fall. And St. Paul, in his letter to the Thessalonians, he tells everyone that they should keep their bodies with holiness and reverence. So, again, he's moving away from these, like, external maxims of don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And he's like, okay, that's what you do with a little child, right? You're like, don't touch the stove because you're going to get burned. Don't run across the street without holding my hand, right? I have to speak that way when they're a child because they don't understand. But as a child grows, you can speak to them differently, right? And you don't want them to just live for, like, don't get hurt. You want them to live for, like, go do good. Go receive what's best, right? It changes to a positive. So when he's saying to reverence, like, to look at yourself with the reverence of how the Lord has created your body, um, he's trying to bring out that there is a way and a path that leads to victory over the disintegration of disunity that we have experienced as human beings since the fall. And that way is, dun da the Holy Spirit. Uh, I taught juniors in high school like three years ago, and I remember on their first test, uh, yeah, it was bad, because I, I think it was just too hard, which is fine, but um, they all failed, and I was like, oops. But one of the questions was, the body is the blank of the Holy Spirit, And what I was trying to help them understand is, like, in the Old Testament, right, where did the presence of God dwell? It dwelt in the temple. That's why they built the temple. Y'all, the whole point is that in the New Testament, we don't need the temple in the same way. We have the Eucharist. This is our temple. But he doesn't stop there, right? He's saying, I want my daughters and my sons to be so fully alive because I live at home, reside within them. That is how it was in the beginning before the fall. When we fell from grace, it means we fell in our relationship with the Lord. It means God did not reside within us in the same way because we said no. But now we have the option with our life to receive him in fullness. And we too, and by virtue of our baptism, we literally, like this isn't a joke, y'all. This is crazy. This should make all of us like, Just like, what? Like, we are literal temples of the Holy Spirit. God himself, the Trinity, dwells in each one of you. That's insane. Sorry, I have to keep going. That's crazy, you know? Like, it's just crazy. There's a book by C.S. Lewis called Paralandra. I think that's the one. Anyway, it talks about, like, if we really knew who each other was, like, we would be tempted to idol worship. If you really knew what the human being that's in front of you is, like, you wouldn't be disinterested, right? You would be like, wow. Like, and that's every human person. Okay, but I got to keep going because we don't have that much time. Just think about that for a while after the talk. Um, (laughs) The presence of the Holy Spirit within man. So that's what makes this, like, the reality that we have dignity. That I can't just, I would never do this. But if I want to slap one of you in front of me right now, it's not just like I'm slapping your physical, like, person. Like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. You are a temple of God. What I do to you affects God. Like you, he's within you. Your dignity comes because God loves you enough that he wants to dwell within you. He made you that way. 
He made us so that we would be fully in communion with him. Again, the union of persons. He wants us to be fully in communion with him, but he will never force. It's always through our freedom. Uh, The second to last quote part of page five, it talks about how because Jesus took on a body, um, every human body is now, literally every human body, is now elevated in a supernatural sense. Um, And so we have to take, as Christians, we have to take into account our behavior towards our own body and also, obviously, toward another's body because the redemption of the body brings with it the establishment in Christ and for Christ of a new measure of the holiness of the body. By my living out this gospel, I allow Christ to move into the world in and through me and around me and encouraging others to do the same, that we live up to our higher calling, that we don't settle for the dumpster, but that we hope for the wedding feast, right? And he also says that the virtue of purity is a capacity that can totally be developed, y'all. There is none of you, there's nothing you have ever done or will do or that's happened to you that can keep you from this freedom that's possible in the purity of the heart. And one of the best quotes is at the top of page six, and it says that purity is the glory of the human body before God. It is the glory of God in the human body through which masculinity and femininity are manifested. From purity springs that singular beauty that permeates every sphere of reciprocal common life between human beings and allows them to express in the simplicity and depth of cordiality and unrepeatable authenticity of personal trust. This is why the sacrament of marriage, which we'll talk about next time, but this is why it's the most clear image, reflection, of the love of the Trinity. Because the glory of the human body before God, that's what purity is, and it's man and woman coming together and offering themselves in that fullness. The glory of God dwelling within them and in through the gift of their bodies. Through their freedom, they offer it to the other and receive the gift of the other, and it's a communion, Right? Um, he also talks about how purity stands at the service of wisdom and wisdom disposes us to receive purity. So, um, I don't have enough time to go through all this, but this is the beginning, y'all, but this isn't the end. The end of the redemption, sorry, the end of the redemption and the resurrection is where we're going, right? Um, he calls it eschatological man. I just ran out of time. I couldn't give you 20 billion pages of notes. Eschatological man is man as we will exist at the end of time. It will be the fulfillment of everything we're talking about here, but this is a preparation for that. When we will not be at war within our interior, between our spirit and our body, we will be perfectly integrated, and that is a beautiful thing. Um, this is, I really want you to see this. So the Next quote. The inner man must open himself to life according to the spirit. And all I mean by that is like, just ask the Holy Spirit, y'all, like through your sacraments that you receive, like through prayer, through um, the Eucharist, go into adoration, just be in your car and ask the Lord to dwell within you deeper, like ask for an abundance of grace. Grace is the Holy Spirit. It's his presence. It's like a theological thing. Anyway, just ask him to be even more deeply within you. But if you open yourself up to that, it says this. Um, In order to find again and realize the value of the body freed from redemption, by redemption from the bonds of concupiscence, in mature purity, man enjoys the fruits of victory, which is possible, over concupiscence, a victory about which St. Paul writes when he exhorts everyone to keep his own body with holiness and reverence. The satisfaction of the passions is, in fact, one thing. Quite another is the joy a person finds in possessing himself more fully since in this way he can also become more fully a true gift for another person. The words Christ spoke in the Sermon on the Mount direct the human heart precisely towards this joy. We entrust ourselves, our thoughts, and our actions to Christ's words in order to find joy and give it to others. If we don't settle for just every passing fancy and whim and attraction and desire as it is in that moment without letting truth stand guard at the gates of our hearts. If we don't settle for the dumpster, but we fight this battle, which is possible for a victory over concupiscence, we choose to be custodians and guardians of our own hearts, and then through our freedom, what he says is, you will find joy because you will have possessed yourself fully. And by possessing yourself fully, y'all, this is the key. It always comes back to self-gift. You can only find yourself through a sincere gift of self. The gift comes through your freedom. 
Your freedom comes through you possessing yourself. You know who you are. That the more fully I know who I am and possess myself, the greater gift that I can offer to the other in front of me. Moving on. This is painful, but this is good. He says um, that the creator has assigned to us the body as a task. In our masculinity and femininity, it's a task um, because it is a transparent sign of interpersonal communion. This is why it's such a big deal. It reflects the Trinity. It's a transparent. Transparent, right, means crystal clear. It's a transparent sign of interpersonal communion in which man realizes himself through the authentic gift of self. Man and woman in the communion of spouses discover themselves in each other because there's a whole capacity of humanity that they would not know otherwise. What? Like, yeah, sorry. Clearly there's a God and he's really creative and he came up with this and I'm really glad I did. Anyway, moving on. Um, So this theology of the body, he keeps saying, is that it's not just, remember, it's not just biology. Um, There's so many advances in medicine which are really beautiful, but if I get stuck on the biology, then I'm going to always treat someone, especially in a medical sense, with expediency because I'm just trying to, quote, fix the organism, help the organism, alleviate issues, whatever. Beyond that, he's like, you miss the mark because we're not just bodies, we're bodies and souls. So this is about the whole, he says, the whole cosmic dimension is affected by man. That man stands at the center of the cosmos. And you know where the center of man is, he says? He's like, man is at the center of the cosmos and at the center of man is his heart, his interior. It is within us that everything is decided. Because in every moment in history, he says, it's a moment where Creation is affected by who woman will be for man and who man will be for woman, in and through the gift of our personal freedom. Um, So he's saying, you know, oh, sorry, there's so much things I want to say. He's saying that for us to grow in a mature spirituality, but truly what he means, the mature awareness of who we are through a deeper indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that as we let the Spirit lead, and allow him to conform and transform our hearts that we come to know who we are because we are led by the spirit because he dwells within us and then we can offer more full gift of ourselves to those who are in front of us, right? Because we will know who we are. Um, okay, I have a little bit more time left so don't go anywhere. So, this whole page is one audience because I just typed, like, the whole thing. Cause I, well, I didn't. They're long, y'all. Anyway, they're beautiful. Everything Christ was saying was it had a goal of showing and illuminating the appreciation that we should have for the dignity of marriage and the dignity of the family. Um, and that he brings up, we're going to talk about Humana Vitae, which is the church's teaching against contraception on another day. Um, but this... He's like, this is the tangible, practical way that you can see how this works out, where man and woman have to come to know their hearts. And he says in the document from 1968, Pope Paul VI said, it is also to be feared that the man, growing used to the use of contraceptive practices, may finally lose reverence for woman and may come to the point of considering her as a mere instrument of selfish enjoyment and no longer as his respected and beloved companion. Um, The church teaches against contraception because she says that the fullness of marital love should be based upon both spouses coming and presenting the gift of themselves as they are. As a woman, you have a natural cycle of fertility, and in your cycle of fertility, you have times of fertility and infertility. And he says that because you are human persons with a rational nature, you can come to understand the cycle of your own body, and so too your husband should. And that you should, if you don't feel called to have children at a time, he's not saying that that's bad, but that you would only have sexual intercourse when you are infertile, if that's the case. But understand that for that to work, that requires self-control, right? Like, that means that I really can't do whatever I want whenever I want to do it. That means that both are responsible for each other, and it's, it's hard. But he's saying this is the practical, tangible way in which when you get married, if you want to be a saint, by the way, like, you can get married because guess what? If you're open to it, it's going to make you a saint because marriage, just like every other vocation on this side of heaven, is partly the cross. It's not just the cross. It moves you towards the resurrection, but it's the cross. 
And so he says um, in this second part of this, um, where it starts with mastery. He says, mastery over instinct by one's reason and free will undoubtedly requires esquisis or discipline so that the affective or emotional manifestations of conjugal life, so intimacy between spouses, may be in accord with the right order, in particular with regard to observing periodic continence, which is what I just explained to you. Yet this discipline, which is proper to the purity of married couples, far from harming conjugal love, because some people would say that that's unhealthy physically, he's like, no. Rather, it confers on it a higher human value. It demands continual effort. Above this effort was called ascesis. Yet thanks to its beneficent influence, husband and wife develop their personalities integrally, enriching each other with spiritual values. It favors attention to one's partner, helps both parties to drive out egoism, the enemy of true love, and deepens their sense of responsibility. For example, when I was teaching couples this method of fertility awareness called Cretan Model, you know, we would tell them, like, your, your expression of love is not just your sexual organs. So, like, if you're trying to, to live this out, then, like, there are more ways to love your spouse than just sexual intercourse. Not that we're saying that that's not, like, the supreme way, but, like, that actually loses its value and its beauty if that's the only thing there is. It comes to, like, how do you talk to each other? Like, this is why women will be like, it's really attractive when he washes the dishes, because you're serving her. I'm, that's just reality. A billion people say it. Anyway, I can't go into it more, but I'm just saying, like, it's the, it's the full person. Like, how do you love each other in the fullness? And that's what brings to the marital union the depth and the profundity and the beauty of what it is and should be. Um, the end quote is just saying, everything here is about the reciprocal relation between eros, so that passion, and ethos. The spirit of the gospel, where we look at the other person as a person and not just a an object for my use, right? So remember what I said in the beginning. Passion and lust are not the same thing. God desires you. If you're called to marriage, it's going to be passionate and fun and crazy and awkward and whatever. It's good, right? But not use or abuse or lust. It's not to divorce you into pieces. It's to respect you as a whole. Um, this last quote is from Mulier Sunitatem, and um, it's the encyclical John Paul II wrote in 1988 on women. You should read all of it. This is the best summation of everything I just said in an hour. But he says that in order to become a sincere gift to one another, man and woman have to feel responsible for the gift. This test is meant for both of them, man and woman, from the beginning. Then he goes on a little bit later, and he says that Christ did everything to ensure that in the context of the customs and social relationships of that time, women would find in his teaching and his actions their own subjectivity and dignity. On the basis of the eternal unity of the two, this dignity directly depends on woman herself as a subject responsible for herself. And at the same time, it is given as a task to man. Christ illogically appeals to man's responsibility. And if you turn the page, I'm just skipping a few words. The dignity and vocation of women, as well as those of men, find their eternal source in the heart of God. And in the temporal conditions of human existence, they are closely connected with the unity of the two. Consequently, each man must look within himself to see whether she who was entrusted to him as a sister in humanity, as a spouse, has not become in his heart an object of adultery, to see whether she who in different ways is the co-subject of his existence in the world has not become for him an object, an object of pleasure or an object of exploitation. Last quote, JP2, love responsibility. It's my favorite. I say it all the time. Do not be afraid if love sometimes follows tortuous ways. Grace has the power to make straight the paths of human love. You have the power, y'all, to love in fullness and in freedom and offer a gift of yourself because you have access to grace. Run to him. Beg for the grace. He will not withhold the gift from you. Let's close in a prayer. In the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, I thank you so much for the gift of this evening. I thank you for allowing us to see the beauty of who we are created to be, your sons and your daughters who can hold within us um, just the brightness of your gaze, that you have allowed us to be temples of your spirit. I ask Jesus that you would allow us, each of us, that you would cultivate our gazes to see you even more clearly in ourselves and also in those around us. Sweet Mother Mary, we entrust these prayers to your Immaculate Heart. And Father, you who are good and the Father of, of all good promises and of all truth, I ask that you would pray for us and cultivate in each of us a spirit of courage and hope 
and the joy and the love that you desire for us, especially in and through the gift of our vocations. As we say, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. And our Lady Queen of Peace, pray for us. In the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Thank